Presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. What an exciting night we have tonight. Let me tell you. Because first of all, we didn't even think we were going to be here right now. We thought we were all going to be sitting around watching the Red Sox uh, try to finish off the second game of a doubleheader. But apparently Mother Nature is a Spooky South Coast fan. She wanted to make sure we could go on on time because we need all the time we can get for what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's the legendary case of Lizzie Borden. That's right. You've heard about it for years. You may not have heard the complete story. We're going to give you the complete story, and we're also going to tell you the story that you might not have heard, that Lizzie and her parents, they're still around. So we'll get into all of that. And, of course, if you have had any experiences in relation to this case or any experiences at all that you'd like to share with us, 508-996-0500, 0500 and of course online spookysouthcoast.com we have our live chat room up and running so you can send us questions and comments that way and you definitely want to go to the message board on spookysouthcoast.com tonight because we have some incredible footage captured by our science advisor Matt Moniz down at Waverly Hills uh, last week some video footage some video evidence that we promised you would get up there and we did so uh, I'm going to let Matt tell you a little bit about what it was that he captured well, what we were trying to do is reproduce the shot that TAPS got when they were there with their thermal image. We had uh, night vision with us, and we basically coupled it up to a camcorder. Well, in the process of trying to put myself down the hall for scale so we could show what it's like for somebody to walk back and forth where they got their image, uh, we were... Looking Well, Joe was looking through the viewfinder, and Tina, the owner of the place, and her staff members were standing behind Joe. I walked up to the end of the hall, looked down the uh, room in question, you know, to see where something would come from. Noticed that there was nothing in the room, and uh, all of the other people that were in the building were definitely in front of me and behind the cameraman. Uh, in the video, you can see where I walked down the hall as I walked back. Out of that same doorway where Taps got something, something peeks out the doorway, watches me walk back down the hall, and ducks back in. Because I'm looking over my shoulder over my, over my right. As I swing my head back around to look over my left, it had peeked out and ducked back in. Now, I did not hear or see anything at the time, and neither did anyone else that was there. Well, you didn't see it either. Last week when we reviewed the, the video here in the studio after we went off the air, uh, we all sat around and watched it. And, you know, even then you pointed out, hey, this is where we tried to recreate that moment from Ghost Hunters. Right. And, and nobody picked up on it then. It was only... It's because everybody's looking at me. We're watch, look, Exactly. Right. And it, w- once what, you'd uh, finally gotten sick of looking at yourself, which, you know, doesn't take 
too long. No. Yeah. I like to take shots. Uh, but once you finally did look outside of you know, what it was that you were trying to recreate and you actually looked at the environment around you, that's when it stood out. And when you showed it to me, you know, I was expecting something a little bit, you know, like yeah, maybe maybe when I saw oh, it, I was no like, there's no question what this is. That is a full shape of a human being. Uh, so my first, re- uh, my first instinct was it was a reflection of Joe with the camera, except for two problems. One, you said that there is glass back there, but it's too far away to be reflective. Right. And, and it, it also doesn't go full length to the floor. And it doesn't go full length to the floor. In order to get this type of reflection, instead of a door, it would have to be a full length mirror or full length reflect- reflective glass right there in order to create this full sized image. In addition to that, with the light from the IR, wouldn't that have bounced off any such mirror? Right. And reflected back. You would have gotten a reflection off of the back of the glass. It was too far back for that to have happened there's been, anyway. There was plenty of instances during that video where you got IR reflection right. back onto you. So that would have happened if that was glass. So clearly it's just an open doorway with one of these shadow figures that they claim are always at Waverly Hills. So It's definitely a humanoid figure. And what's interesting, if you look close enough in it, you can see pretty much through it, through the bottom half of yeah, it. I did not think that it was – I didn't think it was transparent until earlier today when I really got a good look at it and I could see the frame of the window behind it through it. Right. So it took a little – a couple of times viewing. Now, if you want to look at it, it's on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Click on the message board. Click on Share Your Evidence and you'll see the Waverly Hills video. Now – it's a brief little 27-second clip, so even people with dial-up internet, you should be able to load it up and watch it. And those of you with more advanced computers and more advanced programs, we invite you to take this to put it through whatever you can put it through to try to clean it up and to make it look a little bit more clear. And if you put it on uh, our website, on the message board, or if you want to email it to us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com, then what we'll do is whoever, you know, cleans it up and, and, and gets a good image for us, you know, we'll give you a call. We'll have you on the show to talk about the process, and we'll talk about, you know, what you think that it is. So a little bit of a incentive there to help us out. Yeah, and uh, eventually once I compile all of the evidence I got in my report, people should be able to uh, write to us or email us and for small possible mailing charge and whatever it costs to produce the packet, we'll send out what the enti- everything I got. We do plan on getting this video to certain groups, but so we couldn't make it available, you know, like for a reimbursement of the cost of the DVD. Yeah. You know, we can we can get copies out to people if they'd really like to pick it apart, because I know a lot of people like to take evidence and disprove the heck out of it. So, you know, we welcome that because we we tried, we can't. So, that's our little bit of evidence of the week. It seems like every week now we're reporting some sort of evidence, so it's going to look like, you know, we're a bunch of phonies or a bunch of lucky guys. And trust us, it's the second, because we wouldn't be here if it was the first. But enough about us, and enough about Waverly Hills ghosts, because we talked about them all last week. So, And if you haven't donated yet to Waverly Hills to help them with their restoration effort, please go to our website, and you can find all the information to send them a little something. Every little bit helps. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we are going to get into the Lizzie Borden case with Leanne Wilbur. She is the... The owner, the proprietor, manager, what term do you prefer? Manager. Manager. She's the manager of Lizzie's Bed and Breakfast, which is in the actual home that the murders took place. So we will get into all of that and more. Uh, We'll get into the history. We'll get into the trial, the case, some of the facts surrounding it, and then we'll get into the hauntings that are still happening today. So stay tuned. 
stripper, Mr. Andrew Borden, died, and he got his daughter Lizzie on a charge of homicide. Some folks say she didn't do it, and others say, of course she did. They all agree Miss Lizzie B. was a problem kind of kid. Cause you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts, not even if his land is a surprise. A surprise! No, you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts, you know how neighbors love to criticize. Gone to take a snooze, and I hope he went to heaven, cause he wasn't wearing shoes. Lizzie kinda rearranged him with a hatchet, so they say. Then she got her mother in that same old-fashioned way. But you can't walk your mama up in You can't. I mean, I went and I looked through the rule books. There's actually a bylaw, very small print. Bottom of one of the pages says, don't kill your parents. But, you know, didn't stop. Whoever committed this crime still unsolved today um at least in the eyes of the court it was not lizzie borden but uh we'll talk about all that and more because our guest is leanne wilbur the manager of lizzie's bed and breakfast which is in the original borden home at 92 second street in fall river you can visit their website lizzie-borden.com and with her is andrea caplet who is the event coordinator for the bed and breakfast, and they have some great events there that we will talk about a little bit later on. Now, how did you become interested in this home and what had happened there? I've always known about it growing up in Rhode Island, and um, so growing up so close to something, you tend to learn over the years, mm -hmm. but it had always been a passing interest. Um, three years ago, I decided to bring my boyfriend there for Valentine's Day, for an overnight stay when I found out it was a and b was uh was he up for it or was he had no idea? I just said, honey, we're going to a quaint little romantic getaway for the weekend for Valentine's Day, and uh, I brought him to uh, Lizzie's. <laughs> well, it's better than bringing your parents, though. I mean, what would that tell them? Actually, it was my mother who gave me the initial gift certificate to go. Well, that's tempting fate. <laughs> so, and then uh, about when did you make the move to take over? It was his idea, actually. I. Uh, Again, we brought him, I brought him there for Valentine's Day. He turned on the news one morning in November, saw that the house was going on the market. He called me at work and said, guess what's going, on? Guess what's going up for sale and guess what we're going to do. <laughs> and the rest is history. Well, a pleasant surprise, though. It was a surprise. And, but there was a period of time, a long period of time, where it was just a regular private residence. Yes. The house was privately owned up until 1995 when Martha McGinn, the former owner, and her partner, Ron Evans, um, decided to open it up to the public. Martha's grandparents bought the house in 1948 and ran to print the printing business that was in the building next to it that we just demolished to restore the property. And, yeah, because you guys made a lot of renovations uh, from where it was even when you purchased it. How much different is the home today than it was back in 1892? Interior-wise, not changed at all. Very, very little has changed inside with the exception of uh, modern plumbing. Mm -hmm which the Bordens definitely did not have, and electricity in the house. Uh, the exterior we just have revamped entirely within the last year. The demolition of the printing shop, restoration of the house, rebuilding a replica of the Borden barn where Lizzie said she was during the murders, or at least during father's murder, and uh, put in some badly needed parking in the back. Yes, that was convenient when we found that <laughs> on our visit yesterday. We were like, where are we going to park? There's a bus station? Where are we going to park? And just happened to see that behind there. So that must be... You know, a welcome treat for the guests to be able to say, I might be parking where Lizzie was supposedly eating pears. 
does help out quite a bit with our day tours. <laughs> and now, so when you started making these improvements, uh, were you able to keep as much of the interior furniture and furnishings original, or is it was over the years was a lot of their personal items lost as other families had lived there? The house was um, the furnish the original furnishings in the house were completely removed when Lizzie and Emma moved out in 1893. I believe most of the furniture was stored in a warehouse on the waterfront, and that warehouse was destroyed in a hurricane. And the original sofa that Mr. Borden was found on ended up somewhere in the Taunton River, I believe. It was a private home from then on. Uh, the girls actually held on to the property till 1918. It was a boarding house, and then it was privately owned. I believe eight families have owned it since then. And so it was a private home for many, many years, and the families who lived there wanted to forget whatever happened in that house. Yeah. So up until 95, when Martha McGinn and Ron Evans refurbished the house and tried to recreate the inside, it looked nothing interior-wise as to what it does today. And not being from, I mean, I'm from this area for a long time, but not, I mean, I'm not that old myself, but even what you know of a Fall River history, at what point did they start to start to embrace this case instead of turn their back? Because, you know, when Lizzie Borden was found not guilty, she was ostracized by the entire city. So at what point did it start to become part of their identity? Was it the Elizabeth Montgomery movie? Was it once they started realizing that people wanted to keep learning about this? The Elizabeth Montgomery movie was made back in 1975 when that was still a private home, and Mr. McGinn allowed no one into the house. I believe Paramount did try to get in, but they, he refused them. He even refused them to let them use the exterior of the house, so the house looks nothing like our house in the movie. And um, I, I think it's only been the last maybe 10 or 15 years that Fall River is starting to embrace Lizzie a little more as than just trying to shun her. The younger crowd is embracing her. It's mm -hmm. the older generation that I still run across that don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. I was going to say, like, for for as long as I've been around here, it's been, you know, it, it's like it's only started to become, you know, this this folk story of Fall River. Before that, it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, well, there's other things about Fall River that we can talk about instead of that. But, it, you know, like you said, the last 10 or 15 years, it seems to really be, you know, like the anti-hero, it's like these, these younger kids, as you said, are embracing Lizzie Boyd not so much because she's a murderer, but because she stands for something that's, you know, a little bit darker and a little bit, you know, more twisted than what you would normally find in history. It's, you know, sometimes it's the stuff that gets ignored ends up becoming popular because it gets, you know what I mean? It's like the rebel culture, like that type of attitude toward it, so... Well, let's uh, let's talk about the case a little bit now. When exactly did this take place? Uh, I know it took place in 1892. August 4th, which was a Thursday, 1892. And prior to that, uh, uh, looks like uh, i got a timeline here in front of me, so let me just glance at this. Uh, a little bit before that, uh, Andrew Borden, the father, had repurchased a home that he had sold to Lizzie and Emma, the two sisters, his two daughters, as far as you know, is that the source of any kind of animosity? The fact that he, you know, gave them this house uh, about five years earlier and then repurchased it from them? Did they want to sell it to him? What do you know about that? Mr. Borden gave them the girls the property, the property on Ferry Street. It was a rental property. In lieu of him giving, buying half of a property on Fourth Street for Abby Borden's sister Sarah, 
The girls didn't know about the property transaction. Mr. Borden bought that piece of property on 4th Street and put it in Abby's name and gave her the deed. And the girls found out about this several months later, and they were furious with him. As he does for her family, he should do for his own. So um, Mr. Borden gave them the property on Ferry Street. The girls held on to it for five years and collected and pocketed the rent. And I believe... In June of 1892, just a couple months before the murders, when the house was so dilapidated, the girls could no longer afford the upkeep on it because they spent all the rental money. Mr. Borden bought the property back for $5,000, the house he gave to them for absolutely nothing, uh, $2,000 more than it was worth. Wow. So, I mean, I can understand if that whole incident was a, you know, a, a touchy subject in that family, a little bit of animosity. And in addition, I mean, they did not get along at all with, with Abigail, their stepmother, correct? From everything I have read, Abby um, Abby seems to have tried her best with the girls. There was more animosity with Emma, I believe, in the beginning, being the older sister, when Mr. Borden remarried. Lizzie did call her mother Emma only from the beginning of her called her Abby. And after the incident with the 4th Street house, both girls only ever called her Mrs. Borden. And it seems like, uh, I know Lizzie was quite young when her when her birth mother died. So it seems kind of like they might have resented, I mean, this is all speculation, but it seems like they might have resented the fact that this was somebody that wasn't their mother and the fact that she chose her own family over her new family. You know, she always did for her sisters instead of doing for them. I mean, it seems to be, from what I've read, that that's, that's their claim as to the way that the family dynamic went. Again, all speculation. Yeah. No one was there to record it, and it's all hearsay after that. But, I mean, generally we can say that it wasn't exactly the uh, Ozzie and Harriet family there <laughs> that they were trying to perpetrate to, to Fall River Society. So the day before they were uh, actually sick, Mr. and Mrs. Borden had felt ill. And Mrs. Borden went over next door to the doctor's house claiming that she had been poisoned? She believed she was being poisoned, she and Mr. Borden both, because they had been violently ill for the past, past few nights. And uh, Dr. Bowen just said it was the bad food they were eating. Because they were very cheap. We like to call Mr. Borden thrifty. Well, that's because you don't want to have to deal with his wrath for I calling him cheap. I have to live with him. Yeah, exactly. But uh, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't a big spender. And uh, so uh, we were talking to Eleanor. Uh, at the house yesterday, and and she was telling us that it wasn't uncommon for them to eat food that was, you know, in the process of spoiling. Because why throw it away if it's still good? You know, even if it's only a little bit good, it's still good. I think I have Mr. Borden figured out. He reminds me a lot of my own grandfather, actually. Mr. Borden didn't mind spending the money on something as long as he was getting his money's worth. So, and that would include food that was still only, you know, just take that top layer off the milk, and the rest of it's fine. So they, yeah, exactly. The bottom's all right. So uh, not that I've ever experienced that myself. So they were afraid that somebody was poisoning them. So that would indicate to me that maybe they thought that somebody was quote out to get them, and there had been uh, threats directed toward Mr. Borden because of a business dealing that he had with somebody. Is that according to Lizzie? I believe. Yeah, well, that father was having trouble with some of his businesses. So they, they did have, you know, some, I don't want to say enemies, but there were some people that, you know, had ill will toward them. It doesn't necessarily mean they would come into the house and murder them in broad daylight, but uh, they did have their share of people that were ticked off at them. Well, Mr. Borden had, I'm sure, gained a few enemies along the way in his road to, uh, road to wealth. One of his businesses was casket making, 
and that was with William Almay when they were furniture makers. And this was a very prosperous thing during, very lucrative for them both during the Civil War. Also during this time, this is when Mr. Bourne became a property owner because he would approach the grieving widows not long after the properties and offer to buy their homes for so many pennies on a dollar. <laughs> that is the one way to, to so corner the market. Gain a, gain a few enemies that way. And didn't he also, uh, I don't know if it's a rumor or if it's proven, but he owned a funeral business and he would cut the feet off to fit those coffins. I have heard that, but I have... Uh, Again, I've only like heard you, that. Said that he, you, you said but that it he, wouldn't surprise me. He, he had a casket-making business, so you would think you'd want to make them bigger and charge people more money to fit the whole body in. But then I've also heard that he, one of his properties was a funeral parlor, and he chopped the feet off. And So, you, you know, there's all these stories and legends going around the city about what a cheap man that he was. So, I mean, that lends itself to all kinds of stories and, and accusations. So they speak to the doctor. They're not feeling well. Uh, and then on August 3rd, uh, Lizzie Borden goes into the pharmacy to make an interesting purchase. Allegedly goes into the pharmacy. The uh, testimony of Eli Bentz was thrown out of court by the judge, saying that um, it was not conclusive to the case because it had no bearing on the case. Um, Eli Benz's testimony was that the day before the murders, on August 3rd, a woman came into his shop trying to buy persic acid, and he had several of his employees identify her as Lizzie Borden. Lizzie, of course, denies ever having stepped foot into his shop. And the judge at trial told the jury to dismiss that because the uh, couple had been murdered with a shop instrument. They had not been poisoned. So that's that doesn't really mean that it wasn't of interest. Matt, Oni is our science advisor. I have a question for you. How familiar are you with press, with Prussic acid. Uh, heard the term. I believe it is a cyanide agent used to uh, kill rats. And isn't that originally when they mentioned that she was in there buying it? Didn't she originally try to say she was trying to get it for the purpose of killing rats in the basement? No, she was trying to get it to clean a sealskin cape. Aha. Uh-huh. But it still would have done the, done the job uh, in terms of working as a poison for human beings as well. So she goes in there and... Uh, you know, allegedly, as you said, tries to buy the prussic acid. And she called Alice Russell and shared her fears that something might happen. She was telling people that she thought that there was something going on, that some harm might come to her family? On Wednesday night, the night before the murder, she went to visit Alice, and she said, told Alice she, that she feared her father had an enemy, that um, something terrible was about to happen, that the milk was being poisoned, the whole family was sick. And this, of course, is the night before the murders. The second person she sent Bridget running off to fetch was Alice Russell. Well, so there's two possibilities here, then. There's the possibility that she is setting the groundwork for, you know, for an alibi, for somebody else to have a motive, for a cover story. Uh, or she could also be setting the groundwork of saying there's something that's going to happen and, you know, we're worried. So it could, I mean, none of this actually indicates guilt. It just, you know, it shows advanced foreboding that there was something happening. So now let's get to the date of August 4th. Exactly walk us through that day for the Borden family and, and what went on. On the morning of August 4th, um, a visitor to the house that day was John Morse. He was the uncle of Lizzie and Emma. He was the brother of Sarah Borden, Mr. Borden's first wife. And he arrived the day before on Wednesday. A lot of stuff happened on Wednesday. He arrives on Wednesday unannounced. He has breakfast with Mr. and Mrs. Borden that morning, and he leaves the house first around 8.45. Uh, 
Mrs. Bo uh, Lizzie comes downstairs for breakfast around 9, and um, Mr. Borden departs for downtown around 9, uh, not long after that, just after 9. Mrs. Borden then goes upstairs to the guest room, and somewhere between 9 o'clock and 9.30, she is murdered. Lizzie never left the house, though, and she didn't hear a thing. She saw no one enter. Well, she when she says she didn't leave the house, she didn't leave the property. I mean, she claimed to be in different areas of the property. Different parts of the parts of the first floor. Uh, she had command view of most of the first floor that morning. Uh, the only time she was off the first floor is when she went downstairs to collect some laundry. And then she came back upstairs, set her iron on the stove, and sat down in the kitchen to read magazines. And I, I know that, you know, we walked in the side door, the kitchen door, yesterday. And is that generally the door that you have guests come in? Is that side door? It depends where they... So, some do come in the side door, so others will walk around to the front. So do, you, do, you know which, do you know which door the Bordens would have used? Generally, they use the side door off the kitchen. That so, was the main door. So, I mean, and, and the, the way that it's situated, there's kind of a wall toward the front door. So if somebody had walked in the front door, I mean, if she was sitting in the kitchen, she might not have seen somebody come through the front door. But at the same time, wasn't Mr. Borden also locking everything down under tight lock and key because he'd had something stolen from him, you know, only a few months prior? The front door was dead bolted. That's why he couldn't get in that morning with his key. So, that, I mean, I'm just trying to bring up every possibility from both sides that people might suggest here because it, it is very interesting how almost every possibility is covered. So, and when she's murdered, she's actually in the bedroom. Uh, Mrs. Borden was in the guest bedroom making the bed, and I was under the impression for years that Whoever it was that killed her snuck up behind her. I didn't realize until I visited the house yesterday that when she was making the bed, she would have had full view of whoever was coming into the room. It's uh, Literally, she would have been staring directly into the doorway. So that would imply, I mean, if you look at the photographs, uh, it does not look like there was a severe tussle that happened on the bed. So if it was some stranger coming in, you know, carrying an axe, jumping at her, lunging at her, there would have been some sort of struggle. Uh, so I would think that it's almost somebody that she would have known or somebody that would have come in without any kind of you know, malevolence as their apparent intent. It does appear that way. She had to have known her attacker. Because even if it was a stranger, wouldn't she have exited the bedroom and gone into the hallway, you know, as politeness would dictate, step out of that room to speak with somebody? I mean... Nowadays, we think nothing of bringing somebody into a bedroom and having a conversation, but in those times, it was a little bit more genteel. They wouldn't have a conversation in the bedroom. It, wasn't, it was considered kind of private quarters. It wasn't proper. So it, it, it really just lends itself to it had to have been somebody familiar and somebody concealing a weapon to have snuck up behind her and just nailed her. I mean, I might be a little bit off in that, but I mean, that's what I firmly believe. Well, that's part of the great mystery of the whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> so, and now, when that murder happens, uh, Mr. Borden is still out of the house. And then he comes home at about what time? He arrived back home around 10.40 that morning. And the first thing that he did was? First thing he went did was take the key off the mantle and go up to his bedroom. Mm -hmm. He came back downstairs where Lizzie greeted him in the parlor. So... Uh, he And the way that the bedrooms are, he would not have gone into this guest room. He wouldn't have had to pass by it. No, he went up the back staircase, not the front staircase. Mm -hmm. 
because the doors between the upper bedrooms were locked, bolted shut. And so he went upstairs, went back downstairs, talked to Lizzie, and then laid down to take a nap. Yes. And that was the long, longest nap he ever took. So at that time, now, what, where did Lizzie claim she went after her father laid down? Because, you know, this is she would have had to have left the, the building at this point for something to have happened. Because now she is, if she's in the kitchen still, she is between the door and her father. So, some, you know, for somebody to have gotten in, she would have either seen them, so she would have had to have left the room. That's the theory. Uh, Lizzie says she went outside uh, after the maid, after Bridget went upstairs to lie down, after finishing washing the windows. Lizzie says she went outside to the barn where she, or to the yard where she picked up three pears off the ground. She went into the loft of the barn. She ate her pears very slowly. She started looking for a piece of lead to make a sinker. She was going to go fishing in Marion on Monday with friends. She doesn't recall how long exactly she spent in the barn. It was anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. She comes back in and discovers Father's body. She saw no one enter the house or leave the house the entire time. She was gazing out the window eating her pears. (laughs) So uh, it gets very interesting from there. So we're going to take a quick break. And then on the other side, we will get into more of the case. We'll, we'll talk about what happened in the days following the murders uh, and exactly some of the strange behavior that Lizzie exhibited uh, prior to the trial. And then, of course, we welcome your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, you can send us questions on SpookySouthCoast.com. Click on the message board, go to the live chat room, and let us know what you think. So we'll be right back here in a few here on Spooky South Coast. Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey there, Little Red Riding Hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want. Listen to me, Little Red Riding Hood. I don't think little big girl Why do I do that? Why do you let me do that? Why do you turn the microphone on knowing that I'm going to do that? Because it's great. It's not great. I love it. It's not great. It's embarrassing. You let me do it. You let me get away with it. You know, now our friend Guru the Werewolf is going to be very upset because I'm stealing his thunder. (laughs) Or his moonlight, as the case may be. Well, we are talking about the Lizzie Borden case, and uh, we are going to get right back into it here with Leanne Wilbur, who is the manager of Lizzie's Bed and Breakfast, which, of course, you know, you're welcome to visit their website, lizzie-borden.com. Give them a call, 508-675-7333, and get yourself a reservation because it's filling up fast now that the summer tourist season is here and we're getting closer and closer to August 4th. So you're going to want to get in there. And then there's also a terrific event happening there next month, a chance to learn about the paranormal and experience it for yourself, hopefully. And we'll get into that in a few moments. But right now, we have a call on the line. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? I have a question for Leanne. Okay. Uh, I'd like to know if at the Borden Bed and Breakfast, she ever had a couple there named Mr. and Mrs. Kirby. They were an older couple, kind of mysterious. Mr. and Mrs. Kirby. Hmm. They They were an older couple. Gosh. If I, I'm very good with faces. I'm terrible with names. If I saw them, I would probably know. I think they were in a play. I think the name of the play was You Can't Take It With You. 
Hi, Keith. Hi, Leanne. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to hear your voice on the radio. Oh, it's been so long. Why, well, Keith, you, you can hear us where you are? Yes. <laughs> wow. I, I just was commenting on how uh, you know, we have a little bit of signal trouble this time of night. I'm impressed. Oh, you know, this is Keith. Yes. And I don't know if you got the gist of the conversation. No, I, I spoke with Leanne uh, last week, and she explained to me that you guys go way back. Yes. And that's who we were. We were Mr. and Mrs. Kirby in the play You Can't Take It With You. Well, she's taking it now. Yes, <laughs> I guess she is. How are you, Ben? I've been fine. I've been fine. And uh, I'd like us to come over there and investigate because New England Anomalies Research will find out definitely whether it's haunted or not. Well, I would love to have you come by. I know you know it's haunted. I know you know it. Well, they offer a money-back guarantee because they don't take any money from you, so it's easy to give it back. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we were just talking about that, Keith, during the break. We were talking about possibly setting up an investigation because it's uh, it's definitely, you know, it definitely lends itself easily to an investigation. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. And uh, my family has a personal interest in that because my grandfather, he was a small child at the time of the murders, but he grew up a mile from the boarding house. So it's, you know, it runs in the family, I guess. Yes, it does. Well, my, my family is buried uh, right next to the Bordens in Oak Grove Cemetery. Have you saved yourself a plot there? No, I haven't yet, but uh, I would like to. It's filling up fast, I hear. Yeah, I know. People are dying to get in there. <laughs> really popular spot. Set him up, he knocks him down. It yeah. works out well that way. Right. We used to have a picnic in there every year, a family picnic. It was kind of like a, like a family reunion, you know, my mother's side of the family and the Bordens and, and us and everything. And Although I never knew the Bordens, of course, but... Um, well, it sounds like a creepy time, actually. <laughs> well, my grand, like I said, my grandfather grew up a mile away from the Bordens, and he was alive when it happened, and uh, he, he passed away in the early 1980s, but he certainly remembered the aftermath of it. Did uh, Now, when TAPS investigated for Ghost Hunters, did they share with you any of uh, their experiences there? Uh, they didn't really find much of anything, but mm -hmm. then again, they were there for only a few hours or less. So, I mean, it's it's definitely begging to have a little bit more in-depth uh, of, of an investigation because when we were there uh, yesterday, we captured an orb, uh, you know, and as we've learned, I remember the first time we met Keith, we were all excited because we got an orb in the Millicent Library, and we thought this was the greatest thing ever. And as we've come to learn, you know, you can't get excited about every little orb that you find. But we got one that's of some interesting value that we posted up on our message board. So if people want to check that out and tell us what they think. Oh, definitely have to check that out. And uh, and we were walking around trying to, you know, just see if we felt anything. And there were a few rooms that we felt, you know, a little bit uneasy. Uh, the the sitting room being one of them. Mm -hmm. And, the of course, the quote-unquote murder room. Yes. And down below, right underneath the sitting room in the basement in that middle section, uh, we felt very strange, and it could be related to the fact that all the electrical conductors are right there. That, that's possible, but I think they could also be feeding whatever there too. It, it, well, exactly, and not only that, but if there's, you know, I mean, just not to get you know morose and morbid, but you know, the blood dripping on the floor, and it's just it would it would be the place that would contain the energy. I think that's right, true. Right below where my computer used to sit. That, <laughs> you know, that's what Eleanor was telling us. I used to use that as an office. I did. I had my office down in the basement there for about nine months while the barn was being, while the house was being renovated. 
And and anything happened while you were down there? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, we're going to get into all the haunting stuff uh, after the news because we are coming up on a news break. Keith, while we have you, why don't you tell everybody what's going on next month for NEAR here in New Bedford? Well, I believe it's uh, the 28th, July 28th, I believe it's... Um Last time I checked my calendar, it was funny, but uh, we're doing another class for New, Ber- New Bedford Learning Connection, and we're doing it for that division, and uh, it's a class on how to go about paranormal investigating. If you've never done it before, this is the class to take, because we take you from the very beginning and take you step by step all the way to analyzing evidence, and at the end of the class, we do show video of actual uh, believed to be demonic possession, and, and myself conducting a blessing where there's paranormal phenomena going on. And um, so I think it's definitely worth it for anybody who has any interest, even if you're an experienced paranormal investigator, I think you'll have some enjoyment there. Well, you can couple it, too, with what's going on at the, at the Lizzie's Bed and Breakfast because they're having a Ghost Hunter University coming up July 7th and 8th. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be, uh, the event is $99 a person, correct? Yes. And, and for that, it's... Uh, what, what exactly does this encompass, this, this Ghost Hunters University? Uh, the evening will include, um, it's being conducted by Haunted Times Magazine out of Colorado, uh, by Keith Moon. And it will include learning how to use the investigative equipment, mm-hmm. conducting a ghost hunt using the equipment, and then the investigation, um, the anal- analyzing of the evidence at the end of the night. It will also include dinner. All right, we can't so beat we that. we will feed you in the house. Yeah, Keith, you don't provide dinner. No, but uh, I can <laughs> drink some chips and dip. You know, I well, that's it's already a tight squeeze in there already with the number of people that sign up for the class. So That's true. So uh, we, th- th- you can't beat it, folks. I mean, the month of July, it's perfect. You know, it's a good time to get out, nice weather, you know, not much going on, lazy days of summer. Get out there and you can learn about the paranormal between these two wonderful opportunities so keith we're gonna have to have you back on before that comes oh yes definitely it's a hot time for the paranormal well it's hot time for everybody this is true yes but we got some we got some things planned that we got to get underway some great stuff so great all right thanks for checking in with us keith okay you're welcome good night lynn good night i hope to see you soon you will do that (laughs) bye-bye bye-bye keith is uh, a very a very big fan of our show he's been with us since the first show he was uh, our first guest and and we always go to him for information and experience. So, Matt, you going to say something? Okay. No, I don't say anything. That's true. You don't. So, and and we were talking about this Ghost Hunter University. Uh, you've already done one already. Yes, we have, and it was very successful. And w- did anybody experience anything while they were there for the investigation? They did catch quite a bit of thi- uh, quite a bit of um, on tape and on film. And the second night, I only lost two guests. <laughs> Well, when you say lost, you mean they went home because they were scared. Um, at 3 in the morning, the, the they were going to stay overnight, and they came, I think it was almost from the New York-Connecticut line to come. The wife is standing there in her pajamas and funny, fuzzy slippers telling me we have to go home, and the, the husband's running out the door with the suitcases. 3 o'clock in the morning, of course, the morning. is the demonic hour. So that is when a lot of activity happens. Now, uh you know, of course, you can't. You don't guarantee anything's going to happen if somebody comes to this. But it, how often do you get a chance to to use some of this equipment to see how it's used properly? I mean, everybody watches these shows on television, and you know, it's it, you see everybody walking around with an EMF detector and telling you what they're getting for readings, but you don't actually know what it means. You don't actually know how it works. So this is a chance to find out and see if you have what it takes to actually get out in the field and do it. 
they teach you what to look for when you're getting readings if you to also look for electrical outlets so you're not getting false readings um, again I'm not a ghost hunter so mm-hmm. I'm not explaining in technical ter- in technical terms as best I should be one piece of equipment that key um, that um, Chris does have that I found very intriguing I had never seen or heard of before was Thomas Edison's telephone to the dead uh-huh he has one and what exactly is that it sounds <laughs> apparently Thomas Edison was working on this when he died himself and it was never completed the instructions to build this are out there and Chris has had one built for him excellent that sounds like and a- that was really an experience a to uni- watch it working. Really unique piece of equipment. So that's something that can't be missed. So all they have to do is go to your website for more information, and we actually have the phone number. We'll give it out right now if people would like to. They'll be calling Haunted Times with this number, correct? Yes. That's who they'll be getting in touch with. It is one one eight seven seven eight eight zero six two three two. That's one eight seven seven eight eight zero six two three two. If you would like to attend the Ghost Hunters University, and uh, you can also go to their website, hauntedtimes.com or lizzie-borden.com for more information. We'll put it up on spookysouthcoast.com as well with a link so people want to sign up. Well, that would be for more information about the GHU. For yes. making the reservations, they should call me at the house. Yes, and that is uh, 508-675-7333. Yes. So, and, uh, hey, I recommend it, folks. I mean, just for the amount of time we were in there, we didn't want to go. And everybody was saying to us, you know, because we're walking around with our cameras and our, our, our tape recorders, and everybody's saying, well, you're staying the night? Are you staying the night? Because they were all convinced something was going to happen while they were sleeping, and they were going to miss it. So they were hoping we were going to walk around the house all night, and it's like, you're kind of paying for a bed and breakfast here. You need to get your rest. So well, we are coming up on the news. Uh, on the other side, we'll have the return of the week and weird after a short hiatus last week. And then we will get into more of the haunted happenings at Lizzie's Bed and Breakfast at the Borden Home, 92 2nd Street in Fall River. Uh, and if you have had any experiences there or any questions about the case, we welcome you to call us on the second hour, 508 500 508-291-0500 on the website, SpookySouthCoast.com, and the live chat message board. We have a couple questions up there already we will get to. And, of course, go on to the website and check out the video, the apparition, full-body apparition that Matt Moniz and Joe Gonski c- captured at Waverly Hills last week. So we will take a break here to spit out some more commercials. Then you'll hear the CBS News, and we'll be back right after that with our Hour 2 theme song. It's, it's crazy. It's climbing up the charts. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. I can smell your fears. I'm not afraid. You will be.
Welcome back. Hour number two, Spooky South Coast. That's right. We're talking about the Lizzie Borden case, and we'll get right back into that in just a few minutes. But first, it's time to do a little news segment that we call The Week in Weird. And last week, we didn't do it. And don't worry, Matt. I'm going to give you some time to get the music ready. One thing that I wanted to mention that we didn't get to last week, uh, it's a little bit weak and weirdy, but it's not, uh, it's not a full-fledged story. But if you remember a few weeks back, we talked about haunted baseball with, uh, with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, and we discussed some of these you know, different cases that surround America's pastime. And one of the things that we brought up was the idea that Babe Ruth might want to come back from the grave and do something to Barry Bonds, considering his ill-gotten ways of passing him on for number two on the all-time home runs list. So if anybody missed the story, when they actually had, when Barry Bonds actually uh, broke Babe Ruth's, well, not broke it, but when he surpassed Babe Ruth for number two on the list, the radio call, which is generally the call of record uh, for sporting events because the radio call is more descriptive, that the radio call is what they use as the archive forever and ever as that historic moment. So right when he connected, when the bat hit the ball and the ball took off and it looked like it was going to sail out of the park, the radio microphone cut out. Now, if anybody's ever listened to a baseball game, how often does that happen? Hardly ever because, you know, they're very professional and they have backup systems in place and, you know, some radio broadcasts even have, in addition to having, you know, the headset microphone they might have, they have a, you know, a desktop mic in front of them that can pick up whatever they're going to say just in case as well. So it's very strange that that would happen. So, you know, the TV announcer is probably the happiest guy when that happens because he gets to be the call of record. But, you know, the babe wouldn't know about television, right? There was no television when he was around, so he was just shooting for that radio broadcast, and he succeeded. So just a little something to throw out there. And, and Dan and Mickey, if you're listening, make sure you put that in your book and credit me with the idea. Anyway, <laughs> it's time to return to The Week and Weird. And, of course, The Week and Weird loaded this week with news from The Omen. That's right. Last Tuesday, as far as I know, the Antichrist wasn't born. Or was he? Because from the Daily Record in the UK... I'm sorry, I picked the wrong the wrong UK newspaper. From the Mirror in the UK, horror film Suzanne Cooper named her baby Damien after the devil child in The Omen because he was born on June 6, 2006. But uh, she did one better than the movie by hitting the full... Uh, on 6606, I'm sorry. But check this out. He was born at 6 a.m. And he weighed 6 pounds, 6 ounces. And she had been induced for labor 6 days prior. Do you believe it? Hey, it comes from The Mirror, one of the most reputable newspapers in all of the UK. Well, I mean, comparably. It is like the National Enquirer of the United Kingdom. But they, they do say that... Uh, this child, who she named Damien, was born on 6606 at 6 a.m., and he weighed 6 pounds, 6 ounces, and she had been induced for 6 days. Now, what they're not telling you is the whole story. He was born at 659. So that's not 6 a.m. That's, like, it was probably 5 seconds away from 7 a.m. So that just shows you a little bit of journalistic fudging. Now, uh, Matt Moniz, why don't you tell us another story about the omen? All right. This one comes from the Daily Mirror. The Omen star, Peter uh, Postlewit, well, yeah, has uh, revealed his brother died after uh, drawing three sixes in a card game 
while he was filming the remake of the 70s chiller. Paul Swite, who plays uh, Father Brennan, told how his 62-year-old brother Mike's pal even joked about him dying after he drew the devil's hand in the game of poker. Pete said, quote, It's a very personal thing, but it's true nonetheless. Mike's death was completely out of the blue. The lads down in the club told me that they were playing cards this week before, but they were playing open three-card poker, and Mike drew three sixes. One of the fellas even jokingly said to him, that's your, that's your numbers now up, and that it's just shortly afterward that he died on March 14th. It's not necessarily got anything to do with the film, but I think things like that do happen, and it's just sometimes we're not sensitive enough to see the connection. You know, I'm starting to get a little bit worried here now with the success of this new Omen film, and we've heard various uh, different reviews of it, so feel free to post up your review on our message board on SpookySouthCoast.com. But I'm starting to get a little bit worried here that they're going to start planning sequels, and they're going to try to start planning other similarly themed launch dates, like you know, like the next one will come out on Christmas Day, or you know, they'll just come up with all these different things, and we're going to be treated to more of these strange stories. I mean, no, no offense to Pete Postlewaite and his brother. Are we going to get a movie about Aleister Crowley on seven seven oh seven? Well, no, I don't think so, because it would have to have already been in the works. We would have heard about it by now. I don't know. I think it work quick. Matt Costa, you have uh, an interesting story for us about uh, something that. Some of these people in this room suffer from? Yes. Oh. Uh, By that, I mean you. <laughs> this comes from the Winnipeg Sun. Don McPhail thinks he has sealed the Guinness Book of World Records by a hair. A very long nipple hair, to be exact. The 31-year-old St. Vital resident is trying to get his name in the British Book of Wild and Wacky Feats by laying claim to have having the world's largest strand of nipple hair. Using a di- digital caliper... The brown hair on the left nipple officially measures 11.43 centimeters. The Guinness World Record is 8.89 centimeters. McPhail said he has never shaved his chest or trimmed or trimmed the stand, strand. He does nothing to protect it and place and his place in the, in hair history. McPhail says that I just I just hope nobody gives me a purple nurple and no. it comes out. Which, of course, a purple nurple is the grabbing and twisting of a nipple of another person. I'm glad you used that term instead of the uh, the less appropriate for radio. I, term. I didn't think that was appropriate for radio, so I didn't use it. Uh, his girlfriend Cassandra Irwin said, "The attempt is silly, but McPhail is determined to share his feet with the world." McPhail said his parents are kind of embarrassed that his co-workers at a fiberglass window manufacturing company are, of course, 100 percent behind him. <laughs> He noticed the un- unusual length last fall and got the idea for measuring the strand when he picked up a 2006 Guinness World Records book at, at a shopping mall. He's hoping to submit an official measurement along with witness statements, vo- video footage, and other evidence by the end of June. Uh, you know, I'm happy for him. I wish him the best of luck, and I, I hope that it just continues to grow, but I'm afraid of what record he's going to try to break next. The only thing I have to say is I smell a challenge. A, ch- a challenge. Let's see if we can get this guy on the show, and, and we'll have an official SmackDown laid, and we'll see what we can do. I mean, 
Just let's just keep it on the upper body. Let's keep let's keep it to the torso. Of course. All right. PG thirteen rated. And uh, we're gonna give you one last quick little bit of news so that we can get right back into the Lizzie Borden case here, uh, and that is from our friends Taps, the Ghost Hunters, who investigated the Lizzie's Bed and Breakfast. They brought in some of the biggest ratings ever for the Sci-Fi Channel last week. Sci-Fi was the number one cable entertainment network. Uh, it says Thursday night, but I believe it's Wednesday night for 18 to 49 year olds and for 25 to 54 year olds during the 90 minute second season finale of the channel's hit reality series Ghost Hunters, bringing in 1.9 million viewers for a 1.5 Nielsen rating. Ghost Hunters is Sci-Fi's highest rated program on those key demographics since the season finale of Battlestar Galactica back on March 10th. The Sci-Fi Channel will be bringing Ghost Hunters back for 13 new episodes slated to premiere in October. Six new episodes will premiere in October, with the remaining seven airing in early 2007. Season 3 of Ghost Hunters will hit the road, investigating claims of the paranormal here in the United States and something fans have been clamoring for for quite some time, investigating cases abroad as well. So, what I want to know is how are they going to get Steve Gonzalez to drive across the ocean? Is he going to take, like, a ship? Are they going to have to wait, like, three or four or five or six days for Steve to come over on a boat because he won't fly? In a pontoon, the rotor van. They probably could do that. I wouldn't be surprised. So that is your Week in Weird. And if you have any stories you'd like to submit for the Week in Weird, uh, we promise we'll stop ignoring them. Because uh, a lot of times people put some interesting stories up on there early in the week, and by the time we get around to Saturday night, uh, everybody's already reported them elsewhere and we try to give you stuff that you haven't heard anywhere else so but you can feel free to drop some stories into the week and weird room on our chat board our message board there where you can also put up some questions for tonight's guest leanne wilbur and we will get into the lizzie borden case some more in just a moment here on spooky south coast Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I chopped him up, but I didn't kill him! The silent assassin strikes again. I, I'm, I'm surprised you were able to do something with that. <laughs> I, I take it this is a new song for you guys. I think you should put that on the uh, answering machine at the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I think that would scare people more than anything that happens in the house. That was the lovely and calming tones of Flotsam and Jetsam, <laughs> the uh, original band of uh, former Metallica bassist Jason Newstead. So if you want to check that out, we highly don't recommend it. Actually, Matt Moniz likes it. He's over here. You know, he's rocking out. So <laughs> don't mean to tear, you know, tear them a new one. But anyway, they have a song called She Took an Axe, and it's about the whole Lizzie boy. It's not as inventive as the, the song we played uh, prior, which I'll, I'll let you, Leanne, you can tell everybody the name of the song because I like the way you say it. Ah, the, by the Chad Mitchell Trio. Yes. 
You can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts. Yes. So, but uh, you can find out more about somebody that may have. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the Lizzie Borden case. And if you want to join in the discussion, maybe you've stayed in the bed and breakfast and you've had some experiences and you'd like to call in and share. 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And you can also go to SpookySouthCoast.com, put it in on the message board. Uh, before we get into some of the hauntings that have happened uh, in the home, especially you know recently, uh, why don't we talk a little bit just real quick about some of the other potential suspects besides Lizzie. Uh, I mean, some people have suggested that Bridget Sullivan, the maid, could have been involved. Uh, they said that everything from she wasn't happy with the way she was being treated or her wages uh, all the way to she wanted to get some money out of them to go home to Ireland uh, to even the most ridiculous theories, like she had to go outside and wash the windows in such extreme heat that she went nuts and went inside and killed Mrs. Borden because she made her wash the windows. Um, and of course, Emma's name has come up, even though she was supposedly in Fairhaven at the time. And, uh, of course, John Morris has been suspected uh, from various conspiracy theorists who think that maybe he was involved or he brought somebody in uh, to be part of it. Maybe it was a, a business deal gone bad. Or, and this one I'd never heard of till today. Uh, an illegitimate son that Andrew Borden might have had, who apparently they found a letter from somebody claiming to be his son? Allegedly. Allegedly. So, and unless any of this is actually in the historical archive, either at the home or at the historical society, you know, it's all just speculation until that point. Uh, but one thing that's that we are sure of, or at least we we think we're sure of, is that the hatchet that they have on display is not the murder weapon. I mean, it's a lot of people have kind of debunked that as being the the murder weapon because they found blood on that, but it wasn't human blood, correct? That's what they said at trial, that the murder weapon, what suspected murder weapon was examined and that the blood on it was cow's blood. So, I mean, in the rudimentary form of uh, uh, of uh, forensic science that they had back then, I mean, they were able to, to match it to a cow, but is would it have been possible that somebody could have killed the cow with it after they'd used it on human beings to try to cover up the fact there was human blood on it? I mean, is that a possibility? The hatchet was found the evening of the murders down in the basement covered in ashes. So, no, no. It was found with a broken handle, too. And they took it out of the house as a suspected um, murder weapon with three other hatchets that day. Well, the the belief I've heard, anyway, in the, the handleless hatchet uh, is that they snapped the handle off because they did have fingerprinting abilities back then. Fingerprinting was unconstitutional in Massachusetts. All right. So there you have it. So that debunks some of those some of those beliefs. We're not talking CSI back then. Exactly. There was no uh, Gil Grissom on the case here. If there was, they probably would have solved it by now. And uh, and and Lizzie had, like we said before, various different alibis uh, in terms of, you know, at different points in the investigation in the trial, she claimed different things. So, I mean, there again to present both sides of it and all possibilities. Uh, there is the possibility that. Being under such intense scrutiny and being the person that had to face the music for all of this that happened to her own family, it is possible that she got confused in the details or was under duress when she gave some of this testimony. You know, just to throw it out there, we, we do want to say that we're not indicting her again for these murders. So you know, feel free to just tell me I'm full of it anytime. And so uh, and after the trial, uh, she was found not guilty, of course. And then she stayed in Fall River because if she left, it would have looked like she was, you know, 
guilty and trying to leave town. You know, she basically had to pull an OJ and stick around and play golf and say she was on the hunt for the real killers. So she moved to the house that she'd always wanted to move to, uh, further up on the hill on French Street, right? Yes, she did move to French Street with her sister Emma. They lived there together until 1905 when her sister moved out, saying Lizzie had become unbearable to live with any longer. And this is where, and, and Matt Moniz just brought this up to me here, but this is where the story kind of takes an interesting turn because she moved up there and she had an actress friend that moved in with her as well, uh, a Nance O'Neill. And because she had this friend that she was very close with, and according to you know the reports that people have given over the years, uh, Emma did not approve of their friendship for whatever reason, so that she ended up moving out. So some of the theory, uh, I'm sure that's what he's writing down as I'm speaking, they think that maybe Lizzie had an inappropriate relationship. Well, I mean, in yeah. terms of genteel society at the time, they felt it was inappropriate. That they might have, she might have had a lesbian relationship with this actress, and that has led people to jump to the speculation that maybe she had an affair with the housekeeper, with the maid, back then, and that this whole thing was to cover it up. I mean, we're just trying to touch on all the bases here. There's... So many directions to look at it, but I don't. I don't think Lizzie and um, Nance were having that style of a relationship. I think it may have just been the fact that Nance was an actress, and back then to associate with that kind of crowd, unlike today, was like associating with prostitutes. You mm -hmm. just did not do it, especially a woman of means. Exactly, and and another thing too that I recently discovered, just doing some uh, some digging here, is she was actually accused of breaking up a marriage. As well, I mean, there was the rumor that she had been involved with someone that broke up a marriage. Now, of course, because of these rumors, they say, well, which side was she breaking up? But, you know, there was some evidence and some stories told that she broke up a marriage. So we can put that into the... Just more fuel for the fire. Yeah, exactly. So with all this fuel in the fire, it's not surprising that the fire has yet to go out uh, since, you know... People have said for years, even before it was a bed and breakfast, that strange things would happen in this house. And now you've opened up the doors for the public to come and experience it themselves. What have you experienced in the house? My, well, starting my first week there, I was down in the basement and doing some laundry and walked through a, what can only be described as, if you walked into a freezer and immediately felt something run down my back like a finger. And that unnerved me quite a bit. I guess that was just my in introduction to the homestead, their way of saying hello. And But immediately I went right back up the stairs. Uh, understandable. And then uh, did you find that over time it became more and more intense? Or was it, you know, just it became just part of the house? For me now it's just part of the house. The overall atmosphere of the house when I first moved in two years ago was a lot heavier and a lot darker than it is now. The um, third floor and basement were especially bad. It was trying to breathe in a high-altitude high type of feeling, the heaviness, yeah, I, the pressure on the chest. I got the exact same feeling downstairs. Basement and third floor were like that constantly. Very, very difficult for me to be in either one. But yet I'm drawn to the third floor, and that's where I sleep. Oh, really? See, mm -hmm. it's it's strange because you know it, you you think you'd want to turn and run, but sometimes you don't have to, especially where it's it seems like whoever is there has kind of welcomed you in a little bit. 
Well, the first few nights I tried to sleep there by myself in the house, I, I do admit I ended up in my car with my Garfield pillow, and that was it. Just was not, I did not feel welcome, so out the door I went, slept in the car. And But over time, you know, now you feel perfectly at ease, as you said. I do now, yes. And, but uh, I've, made some, I've made some changes in the house, um, and I think if, Mr. Borden's definitely happy with them. Yeah, since maybe it's the the fact that you've tried to restore things to the way that it was when they were there, so they feel more comfortable, and they're going to make you feel more comfortable at the same time. Yes. Hopefully, that's what we hope uh, is the case. And uh, and Andrew, you've had some experiences there. Oh yeah, the same thing. The cold spots. The um, one time, it almost felt like somebody jumped into me, and somebody was very sad. I just started crying. We were talking normal like this, and I just started crying. Just overcome with depression. It was like depression, sadness, That's and the then same. I was fine. A couple of minutes later. That's the same thing I felt about three months ago. I had an experience like that. My last experience in the house in the Morse room where Abby was murdered. I was making the bed. The guests had finally left. I was making the bed up before the tours began. And um, I was fine one minute. The next minute, my legs are going out from underneath me. And before I hit the, before I hit the floor, I was crying. I was in tears. Uh, not to, to sound a little bit weird, but when you hit the floor, what position were you in? You, you, you I was see? not. I wasn't by her body. I was at the end of the bed. Okay, because you know, same same activity. You know what I mean. So if but, you got, got that feeling, I I could completely understand. But whatever passed me, passed through me was um, emotionally distressed, very depressed. Truthfully, just depressed. Someone who is in a lot of emotional pain. And and are there other as your as your boyfriend or any males? That have been in the house experienced any type of activity, or is it maybe a, maybe a Abigail or Lizzie or somebody, you know, commiserate, you know, trying to get a, a you see what I mean? Like a my boyfriend is a complete non-believer, but well, he was when we first took the place <laughs> over. He has had some um, experiences he can not explain, and um, so he's beginning to believe, but reluctantly. And uh, one of the people that we spoke to when we went there was Eleanor, who works at the uh, at the bed and breakfast, and she's had a lot of personal experiences and some things happened to her. So we actually did a little interview with her because you know she's she's on the clock tonight. So we did a little interview with her and gathered some of her experiences, some of her thoughts on what was going on. And she's been there when everybody from Unsolved Mysteries to Ghost Hunters to the Travel Channel have been there. So she. Uh, has related these experiences before, but we wanted to bring them to you. So here is uh, a couple of minutes with Eleanor on her experiences. And, uh, and, and you've had some experiences in this room? Or? I haven't had, well, I haven't seen anything in this room, but I've, I've, several times I've been downstairs in the power, and everyone had gone out to eat dinner, and I heard, one time I heard it sounded like this large suitcase full of bricks falling off the bed. It was so, the noise was so loud, and I didn't come up. I didn't want to come up. Another girl who works here has heard drawers opening and closing, opening and closing. And I've always heard people walking around up here when the house is empty. You know, I mean, the first year or so that I worked here, I had no idea it was haunted. No one said anything. Martha McGinn, who owned the property at that time, she didn't tell me. I figured you're dead. You're dead. That's the end of it. And mm -hmm. I find out, no, it isn't. 
but we've we've come to find no, out quite differently. And then I ha I mean I saw what I thought was smoke coming out of the kitchen. Not but the thing that saves you is it doesn't compute right away. You don't realize what's going on. And I but I had this feeling before I saw the smoke. Uh, I was reading a book downstairs and I had all of a sudden I got this feeling that I wasn't alone. There was something else in this house, and it really frightened me. So I ran into the kitchen to get my uh, to get the telephone, and then I sat in the sitting room and I called the owner's mother, thinking, well, at least I'd have somebody to talk to. I wouldn't be completely alone, you know. And then as I'm talking to her, I see all this smoke coming out of the kitchen, and I'm thinking, well, why would smoke be coming out of the kitchen? There's no one cooking. I knew there was no fire because there was no odor. But I, again, didn't know, because it wasn't the whole length of the door. It was like, it was the top of the door, from the kitchen to the sitting room, was up here. Mm -hmm. And then finally it dawned on me, when it moved along, it moved along, and then started to dissipate, it was rolling out. That's when it dawned on me. I, oh, my God. It was, and it, what, it was, like, what colorization? Well, I said smoke. You can say it's a heavy fog or a heavy mist. Now, when Unsolved Mysteries came here, they had a machine in the kitchen, and they were trying to recreate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and finally, I said they weren't getting it, and I said, look, you know when there's a rock concept, and you see all this smoke coming up mm -hmm. from the floor? The consistency of that, that's what I saw. So when they filmed it, they got it pretty close, maybe 85% of what I actually saw. I also see shadows downstairs. That happened, well, like, last week even. I, every now and then, I'd be sitting in the pilot, and I could see these shadows going from the murder couch across the room and I kept thinking oh I'm imagining this 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 can't be but it happened so many times that I thought no I'm not imagining this this is something I also walked along um, when I was checking in about six or seven guests they were coming in the same door where you came in the kitchen mm -hmm. and they were a little way behind me and I was escorting them to their room and I felt the pressure on my shoulder and I'm looking around, I don't see anything. And I'm walking along, I'm taking them to their room, but I feel this. And when I finally got to the doorway, I realized, oh my God, it's a hand. But, you know, I try to forget about it. And a lot of things are very subtle and you try to explain them away. Mm -hmm. But there are some things, there's no way you're gonna explain it away. Because I know what I saw, I know what I felt, even in the bathroom off the kitchen. I was in there combing my hair, looking in the mirror, and I felt something brush up against my neck, and it was so strong, I turned around to see, who was that? There's no one there, just me. Some people think that the spirits that are present are uh, Andrew and Abby trying to point They never clues. left. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they never left. Um, we also have two children up on the third floor that were murdered next door. Uh, next door is the Dr. Kelly's house, that yellow house, and it's still there. And um, the thing that happened, and I found that out a few years after I was working here, that uh, Mr. Borden's uncle lived there with his wife and three children. And uh, his wife was mentally imbalanced. She threw her children down a cistern, which was like a well. Mm -hmm. One escaped, the, and the other two died, and then she slit her own throat. Wow. So they're... We think that's the, we had a picture down in the basement of the wife and the, and the children, and we think those are the children that are up on the third floor. When that psychic comes in, she sees these kids roaming around. I had another psychic that stayed here, and before I even knew about that situation, and he didn't know anything, he isn't even from this area, he was telling me about the two children up on the third floor. 
and he described them, you know? And then that's when I found out a year later, who are these children he's talking about? And I find out it's Dr. Kelly's house. Well, I'll tell you, in the on the far end of the basement, over near the wall, I twice I heard voices and it sounded like a man moaning. And it scared me so much that now when I go down there by myself, I talk out loud, like, where did she put this? Where did she put that? So I don't hear anything. Yeah. You know, I don't want to hear that. Block it. You block it out. I'm blocking it out because it's, it sounded terrible. Don't look now, but spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. That's right. I was just commenting that science advisor Matt Moniz is the long lost monster. You know, we actually have on our MySpace, that's uh, myspace.com slash spooky south coast. We actually have as one of our friends Eddie Munster Radio, so check it out. It's a it's a little bit of it's a, you know, like a podcast type situation where they play some some pretty cool, groovy horror music and of course uh, you can listen to all of our friends' podcasts on MySpace because so many of them play, you know, the the music that you just can't hear anywhere else, that horror surf music uh, that Penny Dreadful is a big fan of. And we'll be talking to her again real soon for something interesting that we have lined up that we're working on. Let's just say fans of the former Creature Double Feature, you don't want to miss this when it does all come together because uh, we got some interesting stuff happening on that front. And we'll bring Penny Dreadful in so she can she can grill the uh, the new master of horror and see if he's ready for the challenge. And, of course, they also have their DVD coming out, so we'll talk about that as well. And right now we are still talking about the Lizzie Borden case, and uh, you just heard Eleanor's experiences. I mean, and you, it might not come across on the tape because we did some editing there and packaged all the all the tidbits out. I mean, she was walking around giving us a tour and just telling us about different experiences, uh, you know, just from everything from what it was like when Unsolved Mysteries came in to she was showing us some photographic evidence that some other people had left behind to, to share. And so I just took little bits and pieces when she was talking about things because she talks about it so, like I don't want to say nonchalantly, but it's like it's, she's accepted it and it happens and some of it she can deal with and some of it she doesn't want to experience again. So that is why, you know, she's just very uh, straightforward about it. And uh, another person who is very straightforward about the paranormal is on the line right now. He is the administrator of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads. Uh, you can visit them, masscrossroads.com. And uh, Chris Balzano is with us. Chris, how are you doing? Excellent. How are you doing tonight, Tim? All right. And you, uh, uh, you threw me for a loop, I have to say, because you started mentioning a Creature Double Feature, and I had started having flashbacks from my childhood. So. Who, who doesn't remember Creature Double Feature? <laughs> and uh, I, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag a little bit until I, until I talk some more into the people that are involved, but let's just say you might be a happy camper uh, by next month, I think. Excellent, excellent. So you actually you actually went to the to the Borden home and, and uh, you conducted a seance there. Uh, well, I was covering the seance. I was asked to uh, cover the seance. It was in early uh, November of last year for Haunted Times. They wanted me to go there um, because Jackie Barrett was conducting a seance and they kind of wanted one of their people inside to, to document what happened on it. And then... Um, they ended up uh, asking me to write a feature article for it uh, as well. So, yeah, we I went down there and um, basically shot the, the seance and, and did some interviews with some of the people that were there and some of the people that, you know, worked there. And 
and uh, I came I came out with a, a little bit of um, not complete skepticism about about what had actually happened, but but definitely uh, some questions were raised. I mean, I did one thing while I was there that I've sworn and that I would never do, uh, and I went back on my word and I went back on what I've been saying here for months. And I used the Ouija board that was yeah. in the in the sitting room, and I tried to, you know, Matt Costa and I, we tried to use it to contact anybody because, you know, it's, uh, if you're going to do it, that's the place to do it. And uh, thankfully, nothing happened at all, nothing. There's uh, actually a Ouija board that was used, um, not directly, but as part of the seance that we were conducting as well. So I guess it was a, a, uh, a Ouija board that had a history of being used uh, during satanic rituals and had been involved in a couple of severe hauntings that that Jackie had been called in to investigate, and so she kind of brought it to uh, to bring a little bit more juice into the uh, ceremony. Those are the ones I definitely won't touch. And, of course, you have the full report up on your website, right? Uh, yep, it's, it's up on my website. It's uh, under Even though it's not really technically an investigation, it's under my investigation page, and uh, you can kind of read the details of what happened while we were there, and, and um, I'm actually going to be posting some other things on it fairly soon because of kind of making some connections between... Um, what was happening in the Lizzie Borden case and some of the other research I'm doing about uh, Freetown. So um, I was actually very interested to hear what Eleanor had said about those children being murdered because I hadn't heard that before. Um, I hadn't either, and when she brought it up, I became really intrigued by it um, because, you know, as we have talked about here for months and months, when you can start piecing together some of this stuff, it's not, it's no longer just the people that are involved. It's the mm-hmm. environment. It's the history of the area it's sometimes instead of you know somebody being a murderer and murdering their victims they could be victims as well being controlled by something else so it does all tie in as you said yeah and that's that's a lot of what i'm working on and, and it's kind of i as i was doing research for the article i started kind of reading more sources about uh the lizzie borden case and I actually came across a book by john douglas called the cases that haunt us which is a a modern-day forensic psychologist approach to several different famous cases, and one of them was Lizzie, the Lizzie Borden case. And, and he claims that even if, even if it was Lizzie, the violence that occurred during it, especially considering it was to both uh, you know, the, the stepmother and the father, was completely disproportionate to any kind of sane or rational act. Oh, I mean, it just kind of like was definitely a crime really over the top. And and that was one of the. I mean, let's let's dispel the notion right now, Leanne. Too, it wasn't forty wax, and it wasn't forty one wax, but it was still a heck of a lot of chops. Yeah, and it was just and and the areas that specifically were chopped. It it doesn't. It's too personal, um, to to and and yet not uh, and yet not personal in the right place. If if it was if it was a vendetta against one of them, it would have. The violence would have been, you know, kind of tilted towards one side, but the, the massacre itself was, you know, kind of evened out between the two of them, which kind of doesn't make sense and kind of feeds into that. And, you know, maybe there's a lot of negative energy that's, that's drifting around that area that, that can't be explained, and that might be the explanation instead for some things that are going on. And so, uh, if pe- like we said, if people want to read a little bit more about the case and... and- what happened there during the seance they can check out your website masscrossroads.com and of course uh your forthcoming book and you're going to let us know when that's coming out i assume oh, definitely and we'll have you back in to talk about it so thank Excellent. you for thank you for joining us chris oh thanks for having me and Sam. we'll talk to you again real soon all right have a good night you too bye-bye and of course the mass paranormal crossroads is your go-to site for all the stories and legends 
uh, of everything that's happened in this state and really interesting stuff. And uh, if anybody has any stories that they want to share, you can always send them to Chris as well. He'll get them up there because he's got – I think it was uh, Malta or, or the Philippines or somewhere uh, was actually visiting his website and led to ours. And I was like, wow, why are people over there reading about Massachusetts ghost stories? And it's because this area has such rich history in this. And, of course, you know, Lizzie Borden cases – First and foremost, when it comes to you know Massachusetts stories and legends, that's the one everybody talks. It's the only one with its own nursery rhyme. So, getting back into some more of the the haunted aspects of what goes on. Uh, I mean, how often do these do guests that stay in the bed and breakfast say, you know, you won't believe what happened to me last night? Is, is it almost? Is it almost like? Uh, you know, you know when they walk in, they're gonna expect to find something, or is it, you know, people that walk in that are totally skeptic and come now? Okay, I believe you now. A little bit of both. Some people come in wanting something to happen; they're expecting it, and they're disappointed when it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people who come in who don't want a thing, anything to happen, and they're the first ones that get picked on. <laughs> well, you know, they're easy targets. Funny thing is, at breakfast the next morning, some people will just be sitting there looking at each other, and they won't say a word. And then you find out later, well, I heard this or this happened to me. But they were too afraid to say it at breakfast because they were afraid to be picked on. And the history of the case aside, I mean, despite what happened in each room, are there uh, certain rooms now that seem to have more activity? For me, it it seems like it's all over the house. It's Mm -hmm. wherever it wants to be. Um... So if you're going to stay the night, you know, it doesn't really matter which room you get. The, the creepiest room has to be the John Morse room because that's where Abby was found hacked to death. Uh, in fact, last week I had a um, a couple bring their 12-year-old daughter. She was coming up for her birthday, and she brought her sleeping bag. That's where she was going to sleep. <laughs> and I, the uh, kids that were there when we went, uh, you know, younger, like maybe in their 20s, uh, they were there last night, and they wanted to stay in Lizzie's room because they wanted to try to, you know, make that connection. They figured, you know, they would stay in there and let them know that they were, I guess, on her side. So I don't know if you heard anything from them, if they had any uh, encounters. They, they did. They got quite a bit on uh, videotape. But in terms Not of... videotape, I'm sorry, on the cameras. In terms of pictures. being touched or grabbed or anything, nothing of that sort? I haven't heard back from them on that yet, okay, but I know the, that this morning they had a couple of very interesting photographs to show us. Uh, one of the young ladies said to me, I have no problem if I capture something on a camera. I don't want anything touching me. So that's what I was just concerned about is, you know, she had she had lovely black hair, and I was afraid that when she woke up in the morning it would be totally white. So, <laughs> so why don't we, uh, just in the last few minutes that we have here, why don't we tell everybody again, uh, just about staying at Lizzie's house as a bed and breakfast. I mean, what is the experience uh, if you do stay there for the night? What What are the uh, uh, amenities? Is that the right word? Is that close? Um, well, above and above all else, we are a lovely bed and breakfast, a caf- um, lovingly restored Victorian home mm-hmm. uh, with crime scenes recreated. You're when you walk through the front door, we, we hope you walk back into the 1800s. 
with uh, the few modern conveniences such as electricity and running water. Yes, thanks but for that. That's a, <laughs> a vast improvement. But above, above all, we are a bed and breakfast, and that's what we try to cater to. And in addition to that, you also offer tours during the day for people that just want to yes. come in and, and take a look around and try to figure out what happened. Yes, we do offer daily tours from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the hour for those who are not brave enough to spend the night with us. And um, the tour is about an hour long. Can't, photographs are allowed in the house during the tour. They are encouraged because, once again, you never know what's exactly. going to show up on your film. And um, it's $10 for adults, $5 for children 7 to 12, and $8 for seniors. And just to to go to get into the house and to have a different perspective on the case, even like I said earlier in the show, just to see, you know, exactly the point of view of the victims when everything happened, it's a it's a great experience. So, and as w- also you can go to that Ghost Hunters University on July seventh and July eighth. So there's more information on their website, lizzie-borden.com, and you can also visit the Historical Society's website if you want to find out a little bit more about some of the what surviving evidence they have, lizzieborden.org. And uh, also, we want you to, one more time, let me just plug it for you, Matt, because it is incredible. Check out our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. Go to the message board, click on Share Your Evidence, and view the footage of a full-body apparition that Matt Moniz and Joe Gonski captured at Waverly Hills during their investigation. So remember to go there, too, so you can get all the information on the Ghost Hunters University on Keith's class and uh, all the other upcoming paranormal activity in the area. So we'd like to thank Leanne and Andrea for joining us tonight. We welcome you back anytime, and, of course, tell the Bordens they're more than welcome to come as well. <laughs> she shudders at the thought. So for Matt Moniz, from Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg. Stay spectacular, everybody. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow.